Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Alfred Hitchcock. There will also be more information concerning my novel, Is That Your Final Answer? Now let's get started with our story about Alfred Hitchcock. Few individuals have influenced an industry and a culture as much as Alfred Hitchcock. He literally invented the film thriller genre in 1927, and in 1929 he wrote and directed the first talkie produced in Great Britain. In the 30s he created some of the most important British cinema ever made before relocating to Hollywood where his remarkable success continued well into the 20th century. His association with American television in the 50s also established him as an American celebrity with a high-profile persona. But behind the fame and adulation, there existed a controlling personality that treated women especially in a bullying and sadistic fashion. Despite a lengthy marriage that lasted 54 years until his death and praise for many of the prominent actors who starred in his films, Hitchcock also behaved appallingly in his relationships with co-workers, engaging in both narcissism and parsimony. As a director and an artist who frequently involved murder, sex, betrayal, violence, and dysfunction as major themes in his films, It is not surprising that his personality was quirky, to say the least. Alfred Hitchcock was born on August 13, 1899, in the London suburb of Leightonston. His father, William, ran a grocery store in the town, and his mother, Emma, gave birth to her son in the second floor of this building, which served as the family home. Hitchcock was the youngest of three children, and at the age of seven, his father expanded the family business by moving to the Limehouse section of East London. There he presided over two shops, one selling prepared fish and chips, the other retailing fish itself. Today, based on its proximity to the central city, Limehouse is a fashionable section of town. But in Hitchcock's day, this part of East London was a lower middle class slum. As a child, because his parents were devout Catholics, Alfred was enrolled in various Catholic institutions, which only served to instill both guilt and fear. Overweight and physically clumsy, Hitchcock was not particularly popular, and adopted a solitary outlook that was complemented at a young age by a voracious interest in film. Just as the boy emerged into his teenage years, so did the film industry blossom into a global phenomenon, featuring the likes of Chaplin, D.W. Griffith, and Mary Pickford. Besides cinema, Hitchcock also developed a precocious interest in criminal justice, even attending judicial proceedings at the Old Bailey, the central criminal court of Greater London, and the location of any major criminal case in the region. As a boy, Hitchcock was fascinated by crime and sensational criminal cases, some of which he attended in person. 
However, none of these passions seemed to influence his choice of a profession. By age 13, when an individual was expected to begin a course of study intent upon an adult livelihood, Hitchcock determined that he wanted to be an engineer. He followed up the seemingly mundane desire with coursework in navigation and mechanics. By 1914, he was already competent enough to attain employment at a wire and cable manufacturing firm known as the Henley Telegraph Works Company. His position involved assisting the sales department with technical estimates. Although his work bored him, the security of his profession was probably underlined by the death of his father in late 1914. His dull work life was exacerbated by a domestic existence in which he commuted each night to live with his mother above one of the family fish stores. World War I precipitated Hitchcock's enlistment as a cadet, but he avoided service through a physical classification disqualifying him from combat. Possibly an attempt to escape his dreary employment situation, he enrolled in night school at the University of London, where he took various art courses. His talent and enthusiasm was such that his employer, Henley's, soon transferred him to the advertising department, where he produced and edited sales and marketing brochures. After two years of experience, Hitchcock broke into show business by getting a job with the newly arrived motion picture studio, famous players Lasky, British producers, a venture associated with Paramount Pictures. He was to design the captions that accompanied the action in the studio's silent films. Initially a part-time employee, Hitchcock worked hard, keeping his day job at Henley's, but eventually landing full-time at Famous Players Lasky in 1921. This production entity only lasted a couple of years, its output not popular enough to justify its continued operation. During this time period, Hitchcock used his access to the story and scriptwriting process to begin to develop his own projects. He also met the woman who he eventually married, Alma Revel, a film editor and assistant director. The studio space that formerly housed famous players became Islington Studios, a facility that catered to various independent producers. Michael Balcon, one of these producers and eventually a major figure in British cinema, gave Hitchcock a job as one of the screenwriters on the 1923 film Woman to Woman. The film was internationally successful, and Balcon then purchased Islington Studios from its American owner, Paramount. Hitchcock continued working on several of Balcon's film productions, including co-productions filmed in Germany with such luminaries as F.W. Murnau. This interaction had a permanent and profound artistic and technical effect on Hitchcock and helped him develop some of his trademark techniques, including filming from the perspective of the character. Hitchcock's involvement as an assistant director on several films produced in Germany did not produce much success, but Balcon felt that giving him more responsibility, not less, would be productive. Hitchcock went back to Germany to direct The Pleasure Garden, a critical success that affirmed Balcon's confidence in the young director. Alma Revel also became a permanent member of Hitchcock's creative team, a relationship that resulted in their marriage on December 2, 1926. Many years later, when asked about this process, Hitchcock enigmatically commented, I married her because she asked me to, a perspective that by then reinforced Hitchcock's purposefully cultivated public persona 
that he had little personal interest in romance or sex. Much of 1926 was spent on the tumultuous production of The Lodger, a film about a serial killer and a wrongfully suspected main character, murder and misplaced suspicion, two themes that Hitchcock frequently revisited. The initial screening for the studio executives involved in potentially distributing the film was disastrous, and Balcon contemplated dumping the project entirely. But the large and potentially wasted fee paid to Ivor Novello, the popular actor playing the lead character, forced him to devise another solution. He hired critic Ivor Montague, who also worked as a film director, to transform the initial effort into something more marketable. By merely reducing the number of title cards and cutting the length of some scenes, Montague retained the spooky essence of Hitchcock's vision of a Jack the Ripper-esque murderer running amok in the London fog. Unaware of the initial production problems, the press raved about the finished version, rating it among the best British films released to date, the public also responding enthusiastically. Hitchcock, initially irritated by Balcon's interference, was happy with the critical response and subsequently referred to The Lodger as his first film breakthrough. If not the first film of the thriller genre, The Lodger is certainly one of the earliest, also introducing the director's habit of frequently placing a cameo of himself in his productions. Hitchcock spent the next few years making a half-dozen commercially successful but currently forgettable silent films that maintained his presence in the British film industry. More impactful was the birth of his only child, a daughter, Patricia, born on July 7, 1928. Later in life, as he became more of a celebrity and continued to claim that he was a celibate with no interest in sex, he was asked how he fathered his daughter. With a fountain pen was his famous retort. The young family purchased a Tudor home in the rural area of Shamley Green in Surrey, using it on weekends after spending the work week in London. Hitchcock's career continued steadily until 1929, when he began work on what was to be another silent film entitled Blackmail. However, the development of motion picture sound technology induced the film's producer to request that Hitchcock utilize sound recording for a portion of the film. Eventually, two versions of the film were released, one with and one without spoken dialogue. While the technology existed to record actual speech in a film, many British theaters were not yet equipped to screen such a production. In fact, most British audiences saw the silent version of the film longer and more popular. Blackmail, another thriller that incorporated violence, deceit, and irony, polled as the most popular British film of 1929. It also initiated another consistently utilized Hitchcock production technique of simulating dramatic action in a major recognizable landmark, in this case, the reading room of the British Museum. For his next projects, Hitchcock employed the process of adapting plays or fictional works into screenplays composed by him and his wife. This first collaboration produced Juno and the Paycock, a filmed rendition of the previously successful Sean O'Casey play. Hitchcock, whose ancestors were Irish, was probably attracted by the play's setting in the slums of Dublin and the Irish themes and characters. His production was mostly faithful to the play, and successfully received. Hitchcock spent the next few years directing and producing various dramas, thrillers, 
and even a musical review before his 1934 effort, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Possessing the same title as his subsequent 1956 effort with Doris Day and Jimmy Stewart, the film has a similar plot involving kidnapping, political assassination, and criminal intrigue. It also cast Peter Lorre, having recently fled Germany after his great success in the Fritz Lang classic M. Lorre, who was Jewish and was uncomfortable with Hitler's acquisition of political power, barely spoke English and ingratiated himself with the director by anticipating when Hitchcock, already a budding raconteur, would finish a story, laughing noisily despite not understanding a word of the anecdote. For the part, the Hungarian-born actor had to learn his lines phonetically. Laurie's mysteriously interesting face was featured on the film's poster, and The Man Who Knew Too Much was received with great acclaim and popularity, reaffirming Hitchcock as a major figure in British cinema, and now known in the business by his nickname of Hitch. Understanding that the thriller was a genre he understood and his meal ticket to further popular success, Hitchcock then set about making an even more impressive film of this nature. The 39 Steps was a very successful, groundbreaking thriller written by John Buchan, released as a magazine serial from July to December 1915, and also as a novel in October of 1915. Hugely successful, Hitchcock read it as a teenager, and it made such an impression that 20 years later he chose to adapt it for what became one of his most important and respected films. Although Hitchcock's films were quite popular and critically acclaimed in Great Britain, they were still characterized in America as inferior in production quality to American films. Michael Balcon deliberately implemented several steps to make the film more appealing to American audiences and critics. He increased the 40,000-pound budget of The Man Who Knew Too Much to 60,000 pounds, some of that for improved production quality, but also to retain the services of actors Robert Donat and Madeline Carroll, both familiar to American audiences, especially Donat. Carroll's role, initially small, was expanded during the production. One of the first thrillers to incorporate the innocent man on the run from an unbelieving society, this theme meshed perfectly with concepts that either interested Hitchcock or were already standard plot lines of his films. Donat is forced to flee London, evade his pursuers across Scotland where he becomes literally handcuffed to the initially uncooperative Carol and ultimately prevails in a dramatic climax in a London theater where all is resolved and revealed. The release of The 39 Steps was a major cinematic event in Great Britain where it achieved spectacular box office success. Its combination of comedy and suspense resonated with critics in both Britain and the U.S., where a poll of New York film critics selected it as the second-best film of 1935. Although it did not enjoy the same commercial success in the States, the film has stood the test of time, and in 1999, the British Film Institute selected it as fourth in its list of 100 top British films. The film also introduced another Hitchcock trademark, the stunningly attractive but icy blonde main female character, indifferent or even hostile to the main male character. The director also included notable landmarks, including Piccadilly Circus, King's Cross Station, and the Fourth Bridge. Some of the expanded budget devoted to recreations of these locations 
on a soundstage, one reviewer made the declaration that there is no doubt that Hitchcock is a genius. He is the real star of the film. Not coincidentally, Hitchcock took to emphatically underlining his control on set, condescendingly referring to his two stars as Mr. Donut and the Birmingham Tart, smashing prop teacups and generally behaving egotistically. For the moment, Hitchcock continued working in Britain, but by 1937, he was already contemplating a move to Hollywood. Perhaps this distraction influenced his work product. Of the final five films of Hitchcock's British period, only one, The Lady Vanishes, was up to the high standard set by The 39 Steps. His last film, Jamaica Inn, had a contentious production process with star Charles Lawton, just as egotistical as Hitchcock, determined to impede the director's controlling, no-nonsense process. The result was considered one of Hitchcock's worst films, so bad that Daphne du Maurier, the author of the novel Jamaica Inn, considered refusing any further sale of film rights to her literary work. By then, Hitchcock was headed to greener pastures in the United States, Sailing on the Queen Mary on March 1st, 1939 with his family, his personal secretary, Joan Harrison, two servants and two dogs, he and his wife were eager to leave. They believed that Hitchcock had accomplished everything he could possibly achieve in Britain and Hollywood allowed him much greater opportunity. He could afford his entourage, having signed a five-picture deal with David O. Selznick, with a guaranteed $50,000 salary for his first picture, Rebecca. Ms. Du Maurier never cared for any of Hitchcock's adaptations, but the large amounts of money paid for the rights to this work and several other efforts were undoubtedly persuasive. The Hitchcocks, especially Alma, immediately took to Los Angeles. Unlike cramped and stodgy England, the weather, casual culture, and luxury apartment they moved into on Wilshire Boulevard were a big lifestyle upgrade. If Hitchcock's personality included a desire for complete control, he certainly met his match in David O. Selznick. The director's adaptation and script outline for Rebecca, that also contained, as always, contributions from his wife, was summarily rejected, with any attempts at including characteristic humor deemed inappropriate. In one of his famously lengthy and detailed memos, the producer stated in the first sentence that, quote, he was shocked and disappointed beyond words, unquote, and declared that the film must be a completely faithful rendition of the novel with a focus on retaining its serious tone. He also made it quite clear that the final version of the film would be his and his alone. An additional headache was Laurence Olivier, so miffed that his wife Vivian Lee wasn't cast in the film that he took it out on the eventual female lead, Joan Fontaine. If there wasn't enough tension on the set, the beginning of World War II in Europe coincided with the first week of shooting. The production was a predictable struggle of wills, Hitchcock sticking to his style of only shooting scenes from an angle or perspective he ultimately would use in a final edit, and Selznick wanting vastly more material to select during the editing process. Clearly, it was not a creatively happy marriage. But, probably as a tribute to both men's ability, the resulting film was a commercial success and the best picture of 1940. Fontaine's performance was Academy-nominated for Best Actress, the 22-year-old probably benefiting from the director's domineering demeanor.
One aspect of the production of Rebecca that prevented any permanent damage to Hitchcock's business relationship with Selznick was the producer's preoccupation with the lead-up and release of Gone with the Wind. Selznick also anticipated a profitable gambit to make money on his contract with the director without having to immediately produce another picture. He loaned Hitchcock to independent producer Walter Wanger at a fee of $5,000 a week while he only had to pay Hitchcock $2,500. A compulsive gambler, methamphetamine addict, and profligate spender, Selznick was perpetually strapped for cash. He could also keep the director at arm's length while the two figured out how to work together in the future. Although Hitchcock was infuriated at what he considered to be financial exploitation, he enjoyed the independence Wanger afforded him to essentially do whatever he liked. Unfortunately for Wanger, some control might have been in order. The resulting film, Foreign Correspondent, starring Joel McRae, was quite popular at the box office, but became Hitchcock's most expensive film to date. Its $1.5 million budget put the film in the red. Hitchcock actually returned to Great Britain briefly after filming Foreign Correspondent, intent on convincing members of his family, especially his mother, to sit out the war in America. Instead, she and the rest of the family repaired to Hitchcock's rural cottage, a partial concession to the danger of the ongoing Battle of Britain. Hitchcock also received vehement criticism for abandoning his country during the war, with other British filmmakers deeply involved in producing literal propaganda. His former mentor, Michael Balcon, was especially critical, but Hitchcock pushed back publicly, essentially responding that his former colleagues were merely jealous of his Hollywood success. His eventual return to California and refusal to bow to this criticism also permanently alienated the British press, who spent several subsequent decades belittling his efforts as Americanized commercialism. Perhaps put off by Hitchcock's budgetary excesses, Selznick decided to lend out the director again, this time for two films. As a favor to Carol Lombard, one of the few Hollywood personalities that the Hitchcocks regularly socialized with, the director agreed that one of his films for RKO would be a Lombard vehicle. The actress, having married Clark Gable in 1939, had rented her Bel Air home to the Hitchcocks and Lombard and Gable, the rare screen industry A-listers who could keep up with the by now prodigious amounts of alcohol the director consumed at any social event. Mr. and Mrs. Smith, co-starring Robert Montgomery, was the last film released during Lombard's lifetime. She subsequently was killed in an airplane crash. One of the actress's typical screwball comedies, it was well-received, but ultimately not particularly liked by Hitchcock, who didn't enjoy comedic filmmaking. In 1941, Hitchcock returned to the dark themes he was most comfortable with. Suspicion is a film about a wife who gradually suspects the worst about her husband, including that he is intent on murdering her and collecting on her life insurance. The film featured Joan Fontaine, but also Cary Grant in the first of several memorable Hitchcock roles. It also used a screenplay credited to screenwriting veteran Samson Raphaelson, Joan Harrison, who certainly had progressed from her former status as Hitchcock's secretary and Alma Revel, Hitchcock's wife. 
Their adaptation was from a novel with a plot that greatly differed from their screenplay. Initially, the female character's suspicions and her husband's true intent are left ambiguous, and he, in fact, may very well have murdered her. Unfortunately, Hollywood studio reality intruded on how Hitchcock wanted to end the film. Having Cary Grant, of all stars, depicted as a callous, profligate murderer was not going to happen. One of Hitchcock's frequently repeated anecdotes relates how he grudgingly played along with the studio, but always wanted a much more interestingly sinister ending, with Cary Grant clearly incriminated. This film's critical and commercial popularity indicates that the studio, despite the unrealistic ending, was probably right. A Best Picture nominee, Suspicion earned Joan Fontaine an Oscar, oddly the only Academy Award ever presented for an acting performance in a Hitchcock film. Now let's take a couple minutes and hear about an important development regarding my novel, Is That Your Final Answer? Now available to read for free on Kindle Unlimited, there's absolutely nothing standing in your way of consuming this hilarious cross between office space and sex in the city from a male perspective. Is That Your Final Answer is the entertaining and poignant account of one man's search for love and reason in a cold and irrational world. Now available to read for free on Kindle Unlimited, also available in paperback and in the Kindle store on Amazon.com. Is that your final answer? Get it today. Characteristically, Hitchcock already had an idea for his next film before suspicion was even completed. In line with the patriotic fervor during wartime, the director developed a plot involving an innocent man involved with the ring of saboteurs. And again, Selznick, not wowed by the premise, immediately began shopping the script with Hitchcock as director to other studios. He also sent one of his employees, John Houseman, to meet regularly with the director, figuring Houseman, who was British, might be able to avoid irritating Hitch by now permanently indignant over what he felt was Selznick's continued economic exploitation. Eventually, independent producer Frank Lloyd agreed to make the film at Universal. Unfortunately, this meant that the studio influenced the selection of the actors involved, in this case Bob Cummings and Priscilla Lane, as opposed to Gary Cooper and Barbara Stanwyck, the director's preferred choices. Cummings was newly signed to Universal, and Lane was available at a cheap price. After paying a lot for the project in Hitchcock, the producer Lloyd had little left for talent and production. Although it showed and Saboteur got lukewarm reviews, audiences loved it anyway. Again, the device of using famous landmarks continued with the climactic scene of the film seemingly staged on the torch of the Statue of Liberty. The wartime chaos of Europe probably convinced Hitchcock to put down roots in America. Carol Lombard's death prompted the Hitchcocks to have to abandon their rented Bel Air home. Alma quickly located another nearby house on Bellagio Road, which the couple purchased and lived in for the rest of their lives. Located near the golf course of the Bel Air Country Club, the home was situated in the most prestigious neighborhood in Los Angeles. Hitchcock also splurged 
on an 85-acre ranch in Scotts Valley in Northern California near Santa Cruz, a secluded location to escape the pressure of Hollywood. Perhaps bored with patriotic themes, Hitchcock then devised a much more disturbing plot for his next effort. A long-lost relative comes to visit his family in a normal American small town. On the surface, he seems to be charming and affable, and everyone, especially his niece, absolutely adore him. However, over time, doubts are raised about Uncle Charlie, and his niece begins to suspect that he is in fact a psychopathic criminal. Hitchcock was intent on elevating his content, and he approached the writer Thornton Wilder, the recent creator of the small-town saga of Our Town, to write the script for what eventually was titled Shadow of a Doubt. Wilder agreed, and Hitchcock then chose the town of Santa Rosa, California, as the fictional and actual setting for the film. During filming, he received word that his mother had passed away an event that probably prompted him to construct a complex and introspective film. Well-received by critics at the time of its January 1943 release, Shadow of a Doubt Today is perceived as a classic American film, as well as the director's publicly stated personal favorite. Its characters and plot have a depth and cynical realism that became a hallmark of Hitchcock's future best efforts. Only months after his mother's death, Hitchcock received word that his brother, William, was dead at the age of 54, from what an autopsy later described as an overdose of peraldehyde, a drug typically administered to alcoholics suffering from delirium tremens. In this case, William Hitchcock may have deliberately overdosed on this pharmaceutical, but his younger brother, not very close to William to begin with, never spoke publicly about this or any other aspect of his relationship with his family. However, the death of his sibling and parent seems to have affected Hitchcock in a newfound focus on losing weight and regaining his health. In his mid-40s, five foot five inches tall, he weighed close to 300 pounds, and never particularly athletic to begin with, was now having difficulty tying his own shoelaces. A crash diet of black coffee, a steak and salad for dinner, and no alcohol removed 100 pounds by the end of 1943, although many of his friends and associates worried that this extreme regimen might eventually cause more harm than good. Eventually, Hitchcock returned to his excessive consumption and battled weight issues for the rest of his life. 1943 meant another film production and another rental of Hitchcock's contract, this time to Daryl Zanuck at 20th Century Fox. Zanuck was not around, involved in military service, but Hitchcock already had an idea for a project before he stepped on the studio lot. A U-boat sinks a merchant ship in the Atlantic, forcing the survivors into a lifeboat that also improbably includes a German survivor from the very same U-boat. Over time, the desperation of the various characters and their behavior towards each other, and especially the German on board, plays out until most of the group, minus the German who gets forcibly tossed overboard, are the central focus of the plot. The film was difficult to make from the beginning. Hitchcock enjoyed his experience with Thornton Wilder so much that he attempted to repeat it on Lifeboat. Wilder was in the service, so first Ernest Hemingway was approached to work on the script, but he declined. John Steinbeck, between gigs, agreed to take a stab at the screenplay, 
but felt Hitchcock was a British snob filled with condescension, especially to his audience. Their brief association did not go well, and by the time the script passed through several other hands, Steinbeck's version was unrecognizable. Hitchcock even felt it necessary to bring in famed script doctor Ben Hecht to whip the ending into something appropriate. To generate audience excitement, Steinbeck's name appeared in the credits, despite the writer's demand that his name be removed. Filming was also demanding, the actors having to jam themselves into a small boat in a film set in a tank of water. Between falling in, getting soaked, and banging into the rocking interior, the production was annoying to all concerned. Tallulah Bankhead, one of the female leads, also came down with pneumonia. Although the process was lengthy and tedious, it was not surprising that Hitchcock got along well with Tallulah, who was well known for bawdy and sarcastic language and a heavy drinker. Despite this relationship, the film was not well received and considered a wartime preachy disappointment. Its most memorable moment might be Hitchcock's cameo, imaginatively introduced when a character in the boat picks up and reads a newspaper with a weight loss ad featuring Hitchcock. Perhaps to get away from Hollywood, the director then flew to Great Britain and got involved in two short projects involving French resistance themes. Hitch's effort for Britain's Ministry of Information was as much an attempt to contribute something patriotic during the war as it was to produce worthwhile cinema. Neither film was exhibited until the 1990s. Hitchcock also stuck his toe in the water with regard to future business opportunities with various British producers, but the reality was that he still was under contract to Selznick. Perhaps, sensing that Hitchcock might mail in his latest effort, Selznick became more involved in the director's next project, a film adapted from a novel entitled The House of Dr. Edwards, a thriller about machinations within a European mental asylum. Psychoanalysis was a current fad among the American elite who could afford it, including David O. Selznick, and Hitchcock figured correctly that a psychologically based theme was topically appealing. To adapt a screenplay, Hitchcock hired the consummate Hollywood script professional Ben Hecht, and despite the cultural differences, the two men's professional relationship was very productive. Hecht's formula was simple, telling the director to write the dialogue as he saw fit, and he, Hecht, would correct it. The two main characters were cast with Gregory Peck and Ingrid Bergman. Selznick did not interfere with the film's shooting in mid-1944, and Hitchcock completed the process on schedule in less than seven weeks. The most notable aspect of the film's production was Hitchcock's obvious infatuation with Ingrid Bergman. The director once famously referred to actors as cattle, and he was frequently condescending and sarcastic on the set. But with Bergman, he was uncharacteristically patient and considerate. The actress responded with obvious respect and attention that even generated speculation as to the extent of the relationship. Later in life, Hitchcock claimed that Bergman actually made a pass at him, but this comment has been historically categorized in the in-your-dreams department. Gregory Peck also noticed that at times the director seemed to be dozing off or even asleep when all of a sudden he would interject some completely timely and appropriate direction. Selznick did not intrude during filming, but typically took control of the post-production process. Hitchcock's idea of involving Salvador Dali in an illustrated 20-minute dream sequence wound up as two minutes in the finished film. 
Selznick cleaved the finished product down to 111 minutes and gave the film a catchy title, Spellbound. The movie had record-breaking box office in Great Britain and was also popular in the U.S., highly ranked on every list of best films of the year. Commercial enthusiasm, Hitchcock's desire to work again with Bergman, and Selznick's need for cash quickly propelled the director's next project. Selznick, with production costs and problems increasing on another film, Duel in the Sun, sold the Ben Hecht-Hitchcock collaborative script and the project Notorious, with Bergman and Hitchcock attached, to RKO Pictures at a cost of $500,000 and 50% of the profits. Hitchcock was again relieved to get out from under Selznick's overbearing interference and even handled the film's production. But Selznick's 50% of the profits still prompted him to meddle with the film. He attempted to insert Joseph Cotton into the lead role that Hitchcock and RKO wanted for Cary Grant. Cotton was under contract to Selznick International and meant another cash infusion if used, but Hitchcock employed a contractual clause to prevent Cotton's inclusion. Ingrid Bergman, Cary Grant, and Claude Rains starred in a film that still remains as one of the best efforts of Hitchcock's career. The timely plot concerning uranium, Nazis, and post-war South America, a terrific cast, the romance of Grant and Bergman, and trick shots including a memorable extended close-up of a key in Bergman's hand put Notorious on any short list of the director's most memorable films. Hitchcock's ability to get out from under Selznick's irritating thumb and the realization on the part of both men that the director only had one more film necessary to fulfill his contract most likely precipitated the subpar The Paradigm Case. Midway through pre-production, Hitchcock and British producer Elmer Bernstein announced a formal partnership called Transatlantic Pictures. While it should not have been a surprise to Selznick that his association with Hitchcock was about to end, his inability to dictate both production and financial terms to the director seems to have brought out his worst tendencies. He rejected Hitchcock and Alma Hitchcock's first attempt at a script and then was miffed when the writer James Bridey, brought in to rewrite the Paradigm case, agreed to also write the screenplay for the first Hitchcock film produced by Transatlantic, under Capricorn. Selznick then decided to compose the script himself. The choice of Gregory Peck and a lesser-known Italian actress named Alida Valli did little to rekindle Hitchcock's enthusiasm. He was not fond of Peck professionally, who he considered overly serious, and felt the rest of the cast was second-tier. Production featured Selznick producing script pages only days before shooting, a lack of organization that frustrated the typically organized Hitchcock. A special set built for the courtroom drama, complicated staging and filming by Hitchcock and expensive reshooting demanded by Selznick bloated the film to over three hours, impossible to release. Selznick then edited the Paradigm case to first 132 and then 114 minutes, but it did little good. The film was poorly received and only earned back half of its $4.25 million budget, the film Hitchcock's most expensive to date and almost as costly as Gone with the Wind. Selznick and Hitchcock never produced another film together, and while the British director's career eventually soared to bigger and more productive heights, Selznick began a slower but inexorable tailspin that eventually resulted in industry indifference and a premature death in 1965 
aged 63. Selznick might have caught a break by being left out of Hitchcock's next effort, Rope, a psychodrama loosely based on the Loeb Leopold murder in the 20s. Two recent Harvard graduates strangle another classmate and hide him in their New York apartment. Eventually, the body in their crime is discovered by Jimmy Stewart. The film simulates real time, and the action all takes place in the apartment. Additionally, the exterior of New York City was simulated, as well as the transition from day to night. The miniature skyline simulation contained 8,000 light bulbs and hundreds of neon signs, and was the first Hitchcock film to employ Technicolor. Scenes were shot in 10-minute segments, which frustrated lead actor Jimmy Stewart no end, and the entire production had a gimmick quality to it that did not succeed. After its original release, for contractual reasons, Rope disappeared for decades, which didn't bother Hitchcock at all. He eventually used words like nonsensical to describe the film. Hitchcock did not lose the 10-minute take concept in his next film, Under Capricorn, a period piece set in the early 19th century in Australia. As positive as their earlier interactions were, Ingrid Bergman and Hitchcock did not get along during this production. But instead of hostility, Hitchcock merely withdrew or brooded, the actors, including Joseph Cotton, openly deriding the film as under corny crap. The film's September 1949 release was hampered not only by negative reviews, but the revelation of Bergman's affair with Roberto Rossellini, this news bringing her widespread morally-based condemnation. Hitchcock never worked with Bergman again, and there was speculation that jealousy and the realization that the fantasy of any relationship with the actress was just that influenced his attitude. The film bankrupted Transatlantic Pictures, and the two-picture collaboration between Hitchcock and Bernstein abruptly concluded. Hitchcock fled back to the U.S. and a four-film deal with Warner Brothers. Initially promising, the cast for Hitchcock's next film, the 1950 thriller mystery Stage Fright, included Marlena Dietrich, Jane Wyman, and Michael Wilding. The plot and production a return to a dependable, formulaic whodunit. Although Dietrich, singing an original Cole Porter song, was included in the film, there wasn't much else to excite critics or viewers, and Stage Fright was considered to be Hitchcock's third mediocre effort in a row. If the production and response to Stage Fright was ordinary, the result of Hitchcock's next effort was anything but. First, he was able to clandestinely secure the rights from author Patricia Highsmith for her debut novel, Strangers on a Train. Telling his agents to keep his name out of it, the option was for a mere $7,500. When his treatment and the authors who helped to assemble it failed to excite him, Hitchcock began looking for a top-flight mystery writer to give the potential script the depth and suspense he wanted. Talks with Dashiell Hammett went nowhere, but then Raymond Chandler was brought in, no doubt finding the $2,500 a week salary most enticing. Chandler also was able to negotiate the work location of his La Jolla home for both screenwriting and any story conferences. After a brief meeting with Hitchcock, the quirky Chandler took the treatment and a studio secretary to La Jolla and made it through a first draft. At any subsequent story conferences, the writer was frequently openly hostile, but he did attempt to incorporate many of the director's story changes and suggestions to no avail. 
The second attempt was bad enough to get Chandler fired off of the picture, with Hitchcock recruiting some assistants and his wife to frantically put together something before Warner Brothers pulled the plug on the entire production. Work began on September 28th for the production set to begin shooting on the East Coast on the 20th of October. For the role of the psychopathic Bruno Antony, Hitchcock secured his first choice, Robert Walker. But for the tennis pro, he settled on Farley Granger after William Holden turned him down. Granger is far more believable than Holden might have been, audiences potentially expecting Holden to literally pummel the strange and annoying Bruno in the first ten minutes of the film. Ruth Roman, the female lead, is practically an afterthought as Hitchcock raises the tension with the dual personalities of the athletic stable Guy Haynes getting caught up in the frighteningly sinister web of a villain both childlike and terrifying. Thank you for listening to part one about Alfred Hitchcock. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books The Dark Side of Genius, The Life of Alfred Hitchcock by Donald Spoto and Alfred Hitchcock, A Life in Darkness and Light by Patrick McGilligan. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. <laughs>